A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. By reopening this case, I mean, we want to give other families hope that, I mean, that somebody can still be apprehended, that, I mean, if somebody's still alive, or maybe even if they're not still alive, that, I mean, with the proper work and, and a, a new, fresh new perspective on things, that you can reopen it and get things to happen, right? Because the other thing is, through the decades and stuff like that, sometimes friends fall out or family, they, they have arguments or fallings out and people that may have protected somebody they just kind of feel maybe their conscience is like you know it's time right it's time in the 1970s homicide investigations were much different detectives did not have tools like gps cctv cell phone tower pings social media or dna They had witnesses, they had fingerprints, they had smoking guns, they had confessions. Old-fashioned police work. On January 1st, 1970, an 11-year-old Métis girl was murdered while she walked to the store to buy candy. She was the baby of a large family, and she was loved. The absence that her loss left in her family is felt to this day. Fifty years later, Her murder remains unsolved. Her family, now much older and much bigger, is left to investigate the crime on their own. In this episode, we present the story of Geraldine Satie, and you are listening to True North True Crime. everyone and welcome to episode 37 of True North True Crime. Thanks for joining us. We would like to thank some people for buying coffee for this week's episode. A big thank you to Christina M, Brenna G, our friend Blair M, Bree, and an anonymous coffee giver. 
If you would like to donate some coffee for an upcoming episode, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash tntcpod. If you are interested in a holiday gift for yourself or for a loved one, we do have True North True Crime merchandise for sale. There are hoodies and sweaters with the True North True Crime logo on them to keep you warm and cozy this winter. We will put the merchandise link in the show notes of this episode. And as always, we appreciate you listening to the podcast and joining us as we bring attention to missing people and victims of violent crime. Tonight we are discussing the murder of 11-year-old Geraldine Satie. She was murdered in the St. Vital neighborhood of Winnipeg in 1970. Her murder remains unsolved to this day. To put this episode together, we used publicly available news articles, and we also spoke to a family member who is working incredibly hard to bring new attention. The family member has chosen to remain anonymous for this episode. They have given us permission to use some of the audio from the interview that we conducted over the phone. We started working on this case over a month ago, and in that period of time, we were able to connect the family with a retired homicide investigator who is a friend of our podcast. We are pleased to say that he has now agreed to take a look at this file. We have also learned that other retired and active investigators are looking closely at this case. It is our hope that this episode, along with other media attention, will bring new eyes and ears to this case. Our friend Jordan over at the Nighttime Podcast will also be covering this case, so we are looking forward to doing another debrief episode with him that we will present as a bonus episode to you all. We encourage you to check out the Nighttime Podcast if you're not already a listener. All right, let's get into tonight's episode. The Satie family is a large family of Métis heritage that hails from the remote community of Matheson Island. Matheson Island is located in the narrows of Lake Winnipeg in the Canadian province of Manitoba. In the modern day, Matheson Island has a population of just 100 residents. It would seem this number has remained pretty consistent for decades. Lake Winnipeg has been a sustainable fishing spot for generations of First Nations people for hundreds of years. Commercial fishing moved into the area in 1890. Leonard Satie, the patriarch of the Satie family, and Geraldine's dad was a commercial fisherman for many years on Matheson Island. He was also quite the mediator on the island. When folks had problems, they would often come to Leonard looking for a solution. He was known for being tough, but fair. Leonard and his wife, Eleanor, had ten kids on the remote island in northern Winnipeg. Five boys and five girls. Sadly, one of their children passed away in his first year of life. For a lot of private fishermen like Leonard, it became increasingly impossible to compete with the larger commercial boats that began fishing the lake. It became tougher and tougher to make ends meet. Leonard and Eleanor made a pretty brave decision in the early 1960s. They decided to move their family to St. Vital, which is in the south end of Winnipeg. So they loaded up their 1958 Dodge and moved the whole family 250 kilometers south to what would have felt like a big city. A world of big buildings and big opportunities awaited them. Leonard Satie began working as a hydrographic surveyor, and Eleanor worked as a psychiatric nurse at a local psychiatric hospital. In St. Vital, the Satie family also took in boarding students from other areas of the province. Anyone who met the family agreed that they were fine people who worked hard. They were also ideal neighbors and upstanding community members. 
At the time, St. Vital was still its own municipality. It would eventually merge with the city of Winnipeg in 1972. St. Vital in the 1960s was an upstanding working-class neighborhood. People of all backgrounds mingled in St. Vital, whether they were a judge, a healthcare worker, a lawyer, factory worker, or agricultural worker. It seemed all of the residents wanted the same thing, a nice place to raise children and to plant roots. The streets of St. Vital were safe. It was one of those idyllic 1960s suburbs where neighbors knew one another. The family lived in a cozy house at 813 St. Mary's Road. What made this move particularly brave was that Leonard and Eleanor could have chosen a different area to find more affordable housing, but instead they specifically chose St. Vital with the hopes of giving their children the best lives and best futures that they could. With nine kids, the family did not have a lot of excess money to go around, but they made do. The kids wore hand-me-down clothing, and the family saved money wherever they could. Geraldine Satie was born on January 20, 1958. Geraldine was the youngest of her siblings, by a pretty big age difference. The next youngest sibling was seven years older than Geraldine. In fact, when Geraldine was born, she was already an aunt, which she thought was pretty cool. Geraldine was funny as a child growing up on Matheson Island. The family remembers that whenever anyone was going to the store, she would ask them to come back with colored toilet paper, purple being her favorite. Getting parental attention in a large family can be a challenge, but Leonard loved Geraldine. To keep her warm in their rural home on Matheson Island, he would rub her feet as she fell asleep. Geraldine was just four years old when the family made the big move but Geraldine and the family adapted to their new surroundings really well. In St. Vital, Geraldine was thriving. Her nicknames were Duddy and Deeds to her friends and family, or Auntie Deeds to her nieces and nephews. One day, Eleanor, Geraldine's mother, asked a neighborhood girl named Iris if Geraldine could walk to school with her. Iris said yes, and Geraldine and her became best friends. The two girls would head to the Swanson's Corner Store to fill up bags of candy for five cents. They would sleep over at each other's houses and do best friend stuff. To this day, when Iris hears Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline, she thinks of Geraldine. Geraldine loved music. She had a transistor radio that she would listen to all the time. She took it everywhere she went. Apparently, she loved lots of different bands and songs. It was hard for her to pick a favorite artist, but she had a 45 that she really liked. The song was Venus by Shocking Blue. Geraldine was smart and funny and was mature for her age. At home, she would make her mother a cup of tea when her mom got home from working at the hospital or help her mother in the kitchen to make bannock bread. At school, she was popular and she won awards for merit and proficiency. Some family members would say that she was spoiled, but in a good-natured way because she was the baby of the family. In the 1969-1970 school year, Geraldine was attending Norbury School, a kindergarten to grade 9 school, which was also on St. Mary's Road. In 1969, Geraldine was just 11 years old. In December of 1969, the relative calm and safety of St. Vital was about to change in the worst possible way. It all started when the phone rang at the Satie home on the evening of December 5th, 1969. Geraldine picked up the phone and answered it. On the other end of the phone was the voice of a teenage boy. The voice on the phone said that he knew Geraldine and he used her name. 
He spoke to her for under a minute. At first, he said he was a 15-year-old schoolmate and that he was in her homeroom, but then the caller changed his mind and said that she wouldn't know who he was, but that he knew her. Then the caller stated that he was watching her. During the call, he made vulgar, suggestive, and derogatory statements of a sexual nature to the 11-year-old Geraldine. During the phone call, he told Geraldine that he was going to kill her and that he knew exactly where she was at all times. Geraldine hung up the phone and told her father what had happened. Leonard tried to comfort his daughter. In 1969, there was very little someone could do when they received these kinds of phone calls. The next day, the phone rang again at the same time. Geraldine became paralyzed with fear and fainted in the kitchen. This time, it was not the crank caller. It was a friend of the family calling, but the trauma of the night before had affected Geraldine. Geraldine was not alone. Other girls in the St. Vital neighborhood also began to receive similar phone calls. Days later, and a few blocks away, the phone rang at another house. A young girl answered. On the other end was the voice of a teenage boy. He said he knew the girl, and he began to sexually threaten the young girl. He said he would kill her, and then he hung up. Another girl, who was also a student at Norbury, received a similar phone call in December of 1969. She lived in the same neighborhood as Geraldine, just a few blocks away. Then, on New Year's Eve, yet another family received a phone call from an unknown young man. He told them that he was going to kill them. All of the families who received the phone calls knew of one another in some way due to the closeness of the neighborhood, but none of them had spoken to each other about it. They all chose to deal with it quietly. Most felt that there was nothing that could be done. And maybe, maybe it was just a prank. But what most people didn't know was that things had started to get violent in St. Vital. Perhaps the young male caller decided to act on his verbal threats. In the early evening of December 14, 1969, a 14-year-old girl was walking along St. Mary Street near Firmer Road. She was alone. It was winter and the sun had set around 4.30 p.m. The young girl walked past an undeveloped vacant lot. She realized that she was being followed. A male figure came out of the bushes and confronted the young girl with a six-inch switchblade-style knife. He grabbed her and dragged her off of the main road and into an abandoned garage. He held the knife to her and threatened to kill her, but the girl started to scream and managed to get away. The attacker was described as a male in his teens. Then, on the evening of December 24th, Christmas Eve, a 17-year-old girl was walking home in St. Vital after attending church. As the girl walked, a teenage boy confronted her with a six-inch switchblade-style knife. He put the blade up to her throat and forced her into a back lane. He told her not to scream or try to escape or else he would kill her. The teenage male continued to hold the knife to the girl's throat as he masturbated. He then took the blade away from her neck and told her to run. She did. The survivor of this assault could not completely identify the young man, but she stated that he was possibly 17 or 18 years old. Two days later, on December 26th, another 17-year-old girl walking in the exact same area was confronted by the young man 
with the six-inch switchblade-style knife. Again, she was pulled into a laneway, and again, he threatened to kill her as he masturbated. She described her attacker as a teenage boy, approximately 17 years old, 5 foot 4, and 180 pounds. The police did bring in a suspect who was a teenage boy, but they released him because his height and weight did not match the description provided by the victims. Releasing this individual may have proved to be a fatal error. Although there were whispers around the neighborhood about the phone calls and knife attacks, most people had no idea what was happening. Some area schools had put out warnings for young girls to not walk alone, but some had not. It was the Christmas season and most folks were focused on family and friends, and the Satie family was no different. After the threatening phone call, things got back to normal for the Satie family. Christmas came and went. Boxing Day came and went. And then New Year's Eve came and went. The year that was 1970 began. A new year, a new decade. Like every New Year's Day, the day was filled with optimism and the hopes of a better future. That day was quite normal in Winnipeg. The streets were quiet as folks nursed hangovers or visited family. At home, Geraldine was no doubt thinking of her upcoming 12th birthday, which was the next big celebration, coming up on January 20th. The weather in Winnipeg that day was cold. The temperature was minus 26 degrees Celsius with a 30 kilometer an hour wind in the air. There was trace amounts of snow falling from the sky with about a foot of snow on the ground. The sun set around 4.30 p.m. Geraldine did her chores that day and cleaned up the family house on St. Mary's Road. She then joined her dad and sat with him in the living room. The two chatted on the couch for a while as day became night. At around 8 p.m., Geraldine had a craving for chips and a soft drink. She asked her dad if she could walk to the Swanson's Corner Store, which was a five-minute walk from their home. Now, this was a five-minute walk there and then a five-minute walk back, a walk she had done many times before. Geraldine's father, Leonard, asked Geraldine if she had any money. She said that her mom had given her a dollar at dinner, and she also had some change. Leonard was a little apprehensive about allowing her to go to the store at night. He looked out the window and saw the street lamps lighting the way to the store. He knew she had made the trip many times. She was always sensible and independent. Although he was apprehensive at first, he believed she would be okay. She knew about stranger danger and she never dilly-dallied. Leonard consented to let Geraldine go to the store. He then asked her to pick him up four penny candies. Excited, Geraldine grabbed her little radio that she had been given for Christmas the year before. She had put a shoulder strap on the radio so that she could take it with her wherever she went. At around 8 p.m., she walked out the door and headed to the store. This would be the last time that her father and her family would see her alive. We are now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And we are back. 11-year-old Geraldine Satie set out into the cold night at around 8 p.m. on New Year's Day on a mission to get chips, pop, and penny candies. She made her way along St. Mary's Road towards the Swanson's Corner Store, which was just five minutes away. There were no shortcuts for this journey. It was a straight shot to the intersection of Firmer Road and St. Mary's Road, where the store was located. What Geraldine did not know was that the store had closed at 6 p.m. that day due to it being a holiday. So the store that she was going to was not even open. Geraldine marched on through the snow and the wind with her radio playing. We did not know if Geraldine made it to the store or not, but we do know that Geraldine was confronted by a person in the vicinity of an empty wooded lot by Furmore Road. This area was usually very busy and well lit. The person pulled out a six-inch switchblade-style knife and forced Geraldine into the trees of the undeveloped lot. After taking Geraldine off of the main road, the person with the knife attacked Geraldine. The assailant stabbed her through her winter coat, first in the sternum and then through the ribs. He continued to stab her four more times. In total, she was stabbed six times in the back and chest. Each of those wounds were fatal. Any one of them could have led to her death. The suspect then fled the scene, leaving Geraldine to die in the cold, dark winter night with her transistor radio by her side. Geraldine was just 19 days shy of her 12th birthday. Back at home, her family began to worry. It had been over 25 minutes since Geraldine had left for the store. Her father knew that she would normally be back by now. The family began to call around to other friends and family to ask if anyone had seen or heard from Geraldine. Some family members traced her path to the store and back, but did not find any evidence of Geraldine. At 10 p.m., the Satie family phoned the police and reported Geraldine as a missing person. While searches began, no evidence could be found in the darkness as to where Geraldine was. The next morning, the family began their own searches again. On January 2nd, 1970, the winds had picked up in Winnipeg. There were 100-kilometer-an-hour wind gusts that blew through the now minus 30-degree Celsius day. Geraldine's brother-in-law walked along St. Mary's Road. He stopped at the empty lot located at 785 St. Mary's Road, just three minutes from the Satie home. He looked at the trees in the lot and wondered if perhaps Geraldine was in there. So he ventured in. At around 11 a.m., he made a horrible discovery. Just a few meters from the road, 
he found Geraldine's frozen body. She was still fully clothed. Buttons were torn from her jacket, scattered around the crime scene. Her glasses and radio laid beside her. In her pocket was the dollar and 39 cents that she was going to use for snacks. At the same time as her discovery, the police received an anonymous phone call from a stranger who stated that Geraldine's body could be found in the same lot. Emergency responders descended on the area immediately. They roped off the area and began to search for clues. They could not find the knife, but they did search the drains and sewers. The news was devastating to the large, tight-knit Satie family, but it has been reported that Leonard Satie was distraught and blamed himself for allowing Geraldine to go to the store. The police investigation would go into full force to solve this crime. Having a child murdered in the upstanding neighborhood of St. Vital was unheard of at the time, and the case was made a high priority. Initially, police did not believe that the murder was committed by a child or a teen. They said that the force that was used to pierce Geraldine's coat, sternum, and rib bones was too much to be a young person. Police began to tie together the previous assaults and phone calls that other people had experienced. The chief of police stated that there was a real kook or screwball on the loose in St. Vital, and that some demented deviant had murdered Geraldine and that he may strike again. The main suspect had appeared to be a teenage boy. He seemed to have known his victims and he knew the neighborhood. It was deduced that he either attended Norbury School where Geraldine was a student or he had attended nearby Windsor School. It was also very clear that the suspect lived in the neighborhood. During the police investigation, Leonard Satie, Geraldine's father, received a phone call from a young man. The man swore at Leonard and taunted him. The caller told Leonard that Geraldine's death was his fault for letting her go to the store. Rumors went around that a 14-year-old boy attending Windsor School admitted to killing Geraldine. The teenage boy lived a few blocks from Geraldine and had attended Norbury School before being transferred to Windsor. More rumors indicate that investigators interrogated the teen. This boy, who was not named due to stipulations on the Young Offenders Act, became the main suspect in Geraldine's murder. For the purpose of this episode, we will call the alleged suspect Brandon. At the time of Geraldine's murder, Brandon lived a few blocks away from the Satie home. Brandon and his sister were adopted into an upstanding St. Vital family. His father was an agricultural minister and his mother was a stay-at-home mom. From all outside appearances, they were a nice family. But there were some troubling rumors about Brandon. He spoke about knives and was rumored to inflict harm onto small animals. There was also questions of why he was transferred from Norbury School to Windsor School in the same neighborhood. Was there a disciplinary problem that no one knew about? Keep in mind, all of the phone calls and assaults were girls from either of those two schools. Brandon's sister attended Norbury School, the same school as Geraldine and the other girls who were targeted. She was in the same social circles as some of these girls. After a 19-month investigation, the St. Vital Police and the RCMP were ready to make their arrest. On August 11, 1971, Brandon, who was now 16 years old, was arrested and charged with non-capital murder in connection with the stabbing death of Geraldine Satie. 
The Crown prosecutor stated that Brandon would appear in family court as a juvenile, but that Crown would petition the court to have the file transferred to adult court. The Crown also stated that they used exacting scientific inquiries by the medical examiner to build the foundation of their case. It is currently unclear what that meant. The Crown elaborated that Brandon had been under investigation for quite some time and that he was interrogated early on in the investigation. It was the Crown's belief that Brandon would need to undergo extensive psychiatric testing before the trial could be held. Then on August 12, 1971, Brandon was released on $10,000 bail. This was a large amount of money in 1971. Perhaps this spoke to the seriousness of the crime or the danger he posed to society. Due to the fact that Brandon was a young offender, it is impossible to find court documents to truly understand what happened next. Unknown to the Satie family or the community of St. Vital, Brandon went to a court appearance at some point in 1971. During that appearance, his charges were stayed due to a lack of evidence. Brandon walked out of court that day, a free young man. Charges are stayed when a judge or crown decides that it would be bad for the justice system for the case to continue. This means the issue of guilt or innocence is never determined. Stays can be granted when the state has acted unfairly. A judicial stay can bring the case to an end. A different type of stay is done by the crown. A crown stay puts the case on hold. The crown can bring the charges back before the court within one year of the date the charges were stayed. After a year has passed, the crown cannot bring the stayed charges back before the court. It remains unclear if there was something wrong with how evidence was gathered, if the interrogation was tainted, or if the arrest itself was under scrutiny. Some people have speculated that Brandon's family had close ties to politicians and judges. With the lack of answers, the rumor mills began to spin. It has now been 50 years, and Brandon has not faced any charges related to the murder of Geraldine Satie. In fact, no one has ever been charged. Manitoba has a bad history of wrongful convictions. This much is true. Tunnel vision, or focusing on just one subject, has been one of the key critiques on law enforcement in wrongful conviction cases. But why, if Brandon was released, was there never another kick at the can? Or another viable suspect brought forward? If Brandon did not murder Geraldine, then who did? What happened in this case that made it not just go cold, but to freeze in a moment in time in an empty lot in St. Vital? Private investigators have uncovered evidence that Brandon was charged in relation to two of the other knife attacks in the St. Vital area in December of 1969. We were unable to uncover what, if any, punishment he received for his violent assaults on the other young girls. Again, his identity is rightfully protected under the Young Offenders Act. Brandon's life after Geraldine's murder suggests a continuation of troubling and sometimes violent behavior. The once troubled kid turned into a troubled adult. According to court records, he has been the subject of lawsuits, DUIs, unpaid child support, restraining orders, and assault charges. There are also some concerning unsolved assaults that occurred in his proximity. Brandon 
continues to live in the Winnipeg area. He is now in his 60s. The Geraldine Satie case file consists of 5,300 pages of evidence, interviews, and leads. It remains one of the oldest cold cases in modern Canadian history. But due to a concerned family member, a small movement has started. People have begun to speak again about what they know and what they've heard. Retired investigators are hopping on board this cause to help find some kind of justice for Geraldine Satie. We asked the family member we spoke to what motivated him to bring this case to life again. I'm just kind of worried. It's a little bit sad that felt like like history had sort of erased her from existence, right? And I, I have a little bit of guilt that I, I didn't maybe try to do anything earlier and, and stuff like that. I just felt like she was just being forgotten, right? And so... I don't think, you know, like looking at her, her stuff online, like, like just Googling her, like there's not much information that comes up. And, and if people were uh, interested in this case or passionate in it, they would just kind of get stonewalled with like, I don't know anything about who she was or what happened or like, it, I, you know what I mean? It's, it's hard to be sympathetic for um, somebody or something that, I mean, you're not really allowed to connect with right and so I, I think i just want to create more of a overall picture of i mean who she was and and what really happened back then too because i mean i i didn't know anything really about the case i mean even i mean the suspect that that they they had i thought it was just like okay you know they they have the wrong guy um i don't want anybody to go to jail for this type of thing but um that one main suspect i mean just everything is still pointing to him and it's not pointing away it doesn't mean that he did it but it just it's just sort of like a big flashing arrow like right here you know solve this case just do a little bit more work and and <laughs> you know you're you're home right We know through the work we do on the podcast that violent crime has an immeasurable impact on families. Two years after Geraldine was murdered, her father Leonard died from an aneurysm. However, Eleanor, Geraldine's mother, lived to become a great-great-grandmother. She passed away in 2007, just short of her 90th birthday. We asked the family contact how this kind of historic crime affects a family. It affects family deeply, right? I mean, my grandpa... I mean, he passed away two years later in 1972. Um, the family um, basically said that, I mean, he died of a, a broken heart, right? Because, I mean, another thing that we found out that our house got threatening phone calls afterwards, just being very disrespectful to Geraldine and, and the deceased, but also the caller had basically scolded my grandpa for letting his daughter go out that night. That, I mean, that was something I, I didn't know until the last few weeks. I mean, I, I just can't imagine grandpa going through that type of stuff, right? I don't really know how my my granny um, really processed it. I know that she, she never talked about it or anything like that. As a, as a result, I mean, I didn't know much about Geraldine until the last four or so months when I open this case because I didn't want to open up the the pain to the family 
and stuff like that. But it also kind of just felt like the time was was right. There just spiritually or something, something almost cosmic was just saying, you know, I mean, times are different now. Human rights have improved drastically. I mean, Me Too movement, anti-violence against children and, and stuff like that. So for a variety of reasons, it, it felt like a reason to go forward with this right now. There is a Facebook group called Justice for Geraldine Satie. When we first joined this group over a month ago, there were just a handful of members. Today, there are over 200 people, mostly folks from the St. Fatal area and the Satie family members. People are sharing their stories, and they are also sharing information that may not have been previously known. Please join this page. We will link it in our show notes. But not everyone is happy that people are once again talking about Geraldine. While we were researching this case, one of the Satie family members received a harassing phone call about the case from a blocked number. The police are now looking into where the call originated from. We asked the family member how our listeners can help to solve this case. Here's what he had to say. Well, I mean, uh, Geraldine has a Facebook group called uh, Justice for Geraldine Satie, and I mean, hey, Likes on Facebook and stuff like that are all fine and nice, uh, but really what we need people to do is probably, you know, write like Manitoba Justice or or the Winnipeg Police or even, I mean, Justice in Canada, somebody higher up to get them to maybe put pressure on on the Manitoban system here to to ask, you know, what happened and why did this case go away and why is it still unsolved, right? Because this is not only one of the oldest cases in Winnipeg, it's one of the oldest ones in Canada, right? Any way that people can be um, activists or something like that, write a letter to somebody or call somebody or, I mean, something like that. You know, every little bit helps. And every every time people are, are talking about something or getting it out there, that's always a good thing. The murder of Geraldine Satie seems like it's solvable, but many of the people who have important information are getting older. Things are getting forgotten or becoming less clear. But we know that with cases like this one, as cold as it seems, they can be solved. It just takes one piece of evidence or a piece of testimony. We know that some very smart people are looking into this case now. If you know something that could help this case, but you felt fear of violence or fear that you wouldn't be listened to in the past, we encourage you to come forward. Times have changed, and what you have to say matters. If the Satie family cannot find justice, perhaps they can get an official explanation as to how this case fell apart. As always, we want to thank you for joining us for this episode. We will keep you posted on anything that comes up about this case. We will be joining Jordan on the Nighttime Podcast to talk about this case later this week, and we will be releasing it as a bonus episode for our listeners. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TNTCPod or buy some TNTC merch at our Tee Public store. Our producers on the podcast are Sarah B.W., Lisa Marie, Amy's Book Reviews, Thomas E., Susan S., Alex and Andrea P., Kennedy, Alberta, Cindy McDee, Blair M., Alyssa S., CJ Gize, Anastasia, Ariel E, Melanie E, Kelly D, Carolyn M, Emily L, Jason D, Jimmy H, Tiffany C, Keith R, Mari M, Lorena, 
Queen Nebula, Maureen, Jesse DR, Louis Rickshaw, and the Missing and Unexplained podcast. We will be back soon with a new episode, so until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.